the most, I think, poignant renegotiation of the people's space is a beheaded statue or a toppled statue. I mean, it, it's reminiscent of, of Iraq when you saw the, when you saw Saddam's statue coming. Welcome to In the World, hosted by me, Rick Robinson, and sponsored by Billups. This podcast is an investigation and discovery into the role and responsibility of brands as they occupy public space. I'm sitting here with one of my favorite people. Chaucer Barnes. Say hello, Chaucer. Hello. This is going to be a good conversation this morning, and I've been, I've been looking forward to this for several days since we, we kind of brainstormed on it. You know, the people's space, that's been a phrase of mine that I've perpetrated. Others have joined in. You, you know, evolve that into the in-the-world phrase, which I hijacked for the title of this podcast. And it's a treat to trade phrases with you because the people's space is apropos to today uh, in a way that it wasn't when I was just reading your book. It's like, you know, you really titled really what's going on today. So let's talk about that. I mean, what's happening out there in the people's space? It seems like it's been reclaimed, reappropriated, redefined. You know, the context of what's happening on the streets is the conversation's different. You know, I was driving around LA this week a few times and I realized that things mean different things now. Like plywood means something different to me. (laughs) Right? Or plywood means something, uh, colors mean something. Uh, colors. So talk about colors. Look, you know, yellow block Helvetica painted on a street. Like, like, will a brand ever be able to own yellow block Helvetica lettering in the public space again, or at least for the near term? I look, will they be able to own it? I don't think so. Will they be able to sample it? Yes. While signaling all of the kind of metadata that goes with that. Right. It's like, you know, I liken it to, the parental advisory uh, visual lockup, right? Okay. If you, write, okay. If, if you have three lines and two of them are white, one of them is black and there's white text on black and it's stacked like that, you are cueing something, you know, you're, this is a meme that you are participating in um, that we all know. And the fact that that meme was established on when I was a kid, you know, little CD packs, um, it doesn't matter how big you print it, where you take it, you are referencing that if you, uh, you know, kind of participate in that visual language. And I feel the same way about this this yellow block lettering. Um, no, I don't think they can own it. I think they might be able to sample it. So if they're sampling it, and that's, you know, interesting. It's like, you know, sampling in music is the same sort of technique. Take something that's got broader cultural meaning or reference or history and make it part of your, your new message. What, what are they sampling? I mean, if you're if a brand is sampling big yellow letters on the street, what what are they trying to say? I think you know to to paint with the with the broadest brush. I think they're sampling the politics of Black Lives Matter. I think they're um, aligning themselves, or at least referencing um, the urgency of the street paintings in in D.C. Now, soon to come to New York and and other places. Um, I think they are they are casting their lot with the uprising of 2020, and you know to go back to what you said earlier, what's happening out there in the people's space? I think they're 
you know, the people space is something that when you hear it, you could hear a lot of things, right? Uh, the space where people are, or <laughs> right. right? Uh, I think what's happening, if I if I can, you know, be a little poetic, bro. They're discovering that apostrophe. It's possessive, mm-hmm. right? It's the it's the space that belongs to the people. Ah, I like that. They're discovering that, uh, <laughs> the apostrophe. So so let's <laughs> let's jump into that because what they're saying is that th- these are my streets, right? This is my uh, space, and a thousand percent. And so would you say then that up until just a few weeks ago, brands, storefronts, street signage, whether it's a big painted wall or a a little name on a corner, you know, hot dog cart in Manhattan, that, that those messengers were defining public space. Now that the people have rediscovered the apostrophe, right. And people's uh, they're redefining the space is, is, so they've taken it back. Is that what you're saying? They've taken it back and they're reshaping it uh, to, you know, in step with their will. I mean, and you see that in the most explicit, you know, the fill in the fill in the name, right? Confederate General, um, Christopher Columbus, right? The, the, the statues, for example, if you start at the most the most, I think, poignant renegotiation of the people's space is a beheaded statue or toppled statue. I mean, it, it's reminiscent of, of Iraq when you saw the, when you saw Saddam's statue coming down. And, th- and that's very didactic. Look, that's powerful. It's controversial. It, uh, yeah. it evokes a response <laughs> in, a, in a deep way. And we're not trying to get political here, and, and I want to caution our listeners on that, but in, inevitably there's, there's political statements happening. Yeah, look, there's politics embedded in that. But I think when you pull out, you you really take that scholarly view of, look, apply this across time and across place so that you can kind of zoom out of the moment. Whenever you've ever seen a statue come down, (laughs) violently especially, it's because people are renegotiating their relationship to public space, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's, you know, in, in Baghdad in 2003. Or in Columbia, South Carolina, in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, this is the same thing. And and to tie those two things together, this idea of the apostrophe and, and the people. I think if you take the most extreme version, which again is the is the is the idea of a statue violently coming down, um, there's a lot of stuff in between, kind of where we were many weeks ago and there that are also signals of people rediscovering you know, their relationship to public space and, and the things that they need to, to well, let's talk about others. that. Yeah. What, what are some of those things in between? Because those are the things that, that all brands now and all players in the out of home space are, are negotiating and thinking about it, considering and, and could easily step into uh, inadvertently, right. If not intentional and thoughtful. So what are some of those things in between? Well, graffiti's back. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, And as you know, right, graffiti signals a certain degree of kind of lawlessness and and unchecked, uncapped, uh, unrestrained id. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) The unrestrained id. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's it's presence anywhere suggests that um, the people cannot be policed, right? 
And what you're seeing when you have these moments where the block letters then trigger an update to Google Maps or an update to uh, the District of Columbia's, you know, they change the actual sign, rename the street Black Lives Matter Plaza. When you see this kind of institutional adoption of what would have previously been graffiti, I think you're seeing an entirely new, um, although I'm not not sure unprecedented, but just nothing in my lifetime has ever behaved like that. Right, You can write something in the street and then now the street's called that? Right, as extreme and as deep. I mean, what's interesting with the graffiti comment is that once you say the word graffiti, there's a lot of people immediately think, like you said, lawlessness, or they look at, at vandalism or, um, you know, it's a crime, those kinds yeah. of things. But if you get underneath that and look at what people are saying, like, what's the well, purpose I, of that? I mean, Rick, I would say, look, I think obviously like graffiti became high art and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. I, 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 when I say graffiti, I really mean like unsanctioned. I'm not talking about uh, wallscapes and train cars and, you know, things that look like they were kind of chalked out or that don't. I'm talking about an almost annotative strike through uh, bombing. Right. When I talk about the graffiti, I mean, like, th- there should be. Uh, <laughs> it's clear that this was not space that was going unused. It wasn't filled with beauty. It was marked over with intent and purpose. It was edited. Well, that's what I want to get at is the intent, right? Because the intent of the graffiti, the graffiti is just the expression, but the intent reflects the mindset of the people on the streets, right? Right. It's it's their way of communicating. This is what's important to me right now. And And it leaves that trail for everyone else. It's the breadcrumb. It's a signal. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The breadcrumb. So, So if you're a brand and you're going to go into the public space, whether it's out of home or any other kind of activation, you've got to listen to those breadcrumbs. I think so. Or you mean, you you may be able to act as if you're deaf, but people renegotiate, or people as they re-enter kind of the public, the, the public commons, they're going to know, no matter how you're behaving, that it doesn't belong to you simply because you can afford it for 30 days. Exactly. So uh, access has been democratized in some ways, right? Yeah. Yeah, it has. And look, I'm sure there are – the access has been democratized, but also too has the idea of – or maybe not democratized, but the the permissions, right, Mm -hmm. have been completely thrown out. And when you see that institutional adoption, for example, Black Lives Matter Plaza – uh, you see for the first time the uh, the infrastructure that is there to um, to resist that idea that everybody has access uh, actually has to you know come a little bit toward the light has to has to bend a little bit uh, and I, I I can't I can't lay that at the feet of anyone except for the masses right well the masses um, have spoken. See, yeah. I, I, I'd like your feedback on this because something dawned on me this week is that the demonstrations we've seen, not just in the U.S., but globally, globally, yeah. people on the street with placards and signs talking, you know, 
B, hashtag BLM, hashtag stand against hate, uh, 846. There's all kinds of little icons and memes that, that people are repeating to get the general message across. And mm-hmm. when I look at that, and, and tell me if I'm nuts here, I see like the largest historic, unauthorized, out-of-home campaign ever. And before you laugh, just think about it. All of these people went into their living room or their apartment or their studio or wherever it was or the back of their car, took a placard or a piece of paper, wrote out their message that they knew would communicate, and they went out on the streets and they held it up in front, knowing that this would get picked up by media, knowing it would get picked up on social, that it would be shared on everybody's Instagram. And it, you know, if you look at it from a media perspective, I don't know, we talk about weekly TRPs and reach and frequency. I don't know. It was a million showing, right, with a billion reach. Uh, yeah. Right? So, I mean, do, do you, is it working I like out-of-home works? I love that analysis. Absolutely, it's working like out-of-home works. And it's working for the same reason, right? Look, it's not lost on me that well, I love – this is, this is the greatest in the world campaign. I, I love that thinking. I think that people recognize the folly of sitting behind their keyboards trying to be activists, right? Okay. And so just as brands that are awake recognize that they need to exist in the world in order to m- matter, in order to, um, you know, display that. We've obviously spoken before about conviction, concurrence showing up um you know i think i think human beings figured that out and they realized that their bodies and their t-shirts and their placards to your point uh and their sheer presence uh was a signal of intent and conviction that they simply could not get across through digital means and if there's not a lesson in that for brands i don't know if it's all anybody (laughs) <laughs> so what you're saying is, and I, I just want to make sure I get this, that people realize, look, you can only go so far sitting behind your keyboard, right? On your social, yeah. with your friends. I've got to get down on the street too, because that's a different level of communication. And your Different level of communication, different level of conviction, different signal to mm-hmm. those who I hope to persuade, right? I think the parallel, we should draw this chart. Maybe this isn't the best for the podcast. <laughs> we should draw this part. This we chart need a Venn diagram, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, here are the lessons that brands can learn from, uh, from, from people taking to the streets to have their own in the world campaign. All right. Well, let's break that down. One, one of the lessons they can learn is that you can't just sit behind your keyboard, right? When you're out on the street, it's a level of conviction, commitment, purpose, uh, proof of life, like I like to say sometimes, I'm here. This means so much to me that I'm out here. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of doing something else, I'm doing this. And in some cases, at risk, right? In some cases, at risk. And so with that, for others who, who go out on the street and take that, that make that step, right? That, that urge, urgent, innate, instinctive step, I've got to make my statement. I, I even at risk, and they see others with similar memes, similar statements. It does. It makes them feel safe. It makes them feel included. When we see mm-hmm. that on social media and on television, if we share those values, we feel the same way. Or if we disagree, uh, we you know we, we react. 
We say, look, I, I don't agree with that. And I've got my own language and my own memes and my own way of communicating to my flock and my birds of the same feather. And so yeah. with, with brands now, though, when you go, when a brand goes out into public space, uh-huh. you know, going back to graffiti and street writing and the iconographic symbolism of all of that, you know, that was appropriated 10, 15 years ago by brands. Hey, look, we want to be seen as urban and hip and woke and now. So we're going to, you know, hire a street rider to do our visuals. And whether you're a car company or an upscale fashion brand, I mean, everybody appropriated it. But it did send a message that, that we're one of you, right? That we're we're part of this, or at least we hear you and we see you and we validate you. And yeah. now, now that's going to happen again. And and what do you think the toolkit will be for brands? Like what we talked about big yellow block lettering in an urban environment. I see other symbols out on the street. I see plywood. I see a mask. You know, a mask is now a political statement. Uh, yeah, that's a piece that, of, out of, of out of home. Yeah. You know, and, and so how does that work? I see, uh, you know, wild posting and uh, pay, I've seen more gorilla paste-ups uh, in the recent weeks than I've seen in, in months. And, you know, and every time I see one of those, I, I think about it. So that's some person, they go to FedEx office or somewhere and they print up a bunch of posters. They go to Lowe's and they buy a bucket of glue. Right? Yep. They load it all in their car or they drag it on their back in their backpack and they go to a public place at risk and they glue up a poster because they've got something to say. And they know that it's one thing to stand on the corner and shout it, but it's a much different thing if they make it at least semi-permanent in the public space. And then not only yeah, they have they... They mark it. Yeah, they can mark right? And there's that a gratification. Right. It's like, this is mine. Even if it only lasts an hour, it was mine for an hour. And I know a lot of people are going to drive by and say, oh, hey, wow, that's mine too. I, I share that. And, and I, now I feel empowered. Now, now, now I'm going to change my conversation a little bit. So the idea spreads. And brands do the same thing in Out of Home. And, and they do it partly by you know, appropriating the visuals and ideas. And so, you know, what, what other things do you think might get appropriated for brands? And is it too early to appropriate or is it just important now for them to be in the out of home space? First of all, I'm fascinated that you brought up plywood. And I think, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't really thought about that um, as a statement, but of course it is right. It's, it's the same statement that it makes when a hurricane is coming. And then it gets that layer of patina when people come and bomb it, et cetera. Uh, and I, I haven't really thought about that, but it, it reminded me to talk to you about something I saw that I thought was really uh, was really smart. So when I'd say day three, day four in New York, when the protests um, at night gave way to looting, um, one of the most brilliant things I saw was Ronnie Feig runs this legendary streetwear brand and now and retail flagship kith uh he wrapped his store in this i don't even know what it was it's like his mesh panel mm-hmm. so here's ronnie five who's not black will never be confused with black but is of urbane and certainly urban culture he enshrines the building in out of home it's huge. And I think it was a Nelson Mandela quote. So it signaled togetherness with 
what he perceived to be the would-be mob. Mm -hmm. And there's no, and it, and it did not try to do what plywood would or what bars would. What it did was protect the space with an artistic and political statement on a grand scale, on a grand print brand level scale. So as to dissuade people from tearing down that business. It sounds like it was defensive and offensive at the same time. In other words, yeah, he used a sign instead of bars and plywood. Right. So the plywood says, please stop. I'm protecting myself. I'm afraid. And then putting a message on the plywood says, I'm being cautious, but I also want to be part of this conversation and I want to participate. And, And I've seen that all over LA as well, where the plywood goes up and it gets immediately reappropriated. And yeah. It can be anything from more aggressive acronyms like ACAB and things like that. But then it also is a place for, like I said, paste up and wild posting where just individuals want something to say. And I saw a beautiful one in downtown LA um, in the uh, old bank district where it just had the words justice spelled out. And it was done, you know, it was ad hoc. Uh, it wasn't super artistic, but it was done well enough where you could see that it wasn't just a scratch and run. It wasn't a hit and run. Like there was an effort there. They spent a couple hours. And I've seen yeah. several that were really beautiful efforts that were extremely artistic. And, you know, people took time and care and obviously prepared before they went out. So it's become a new canvas, right? And the, and And I guess the thing that makes that significant is it's an acknowledgement that when you stand with the people, or sorry, it's evidence of a bet that he made that if he stood with the people that he considered to be in the street, that he would fare better than if he defended his defended his wares against them. Well, one approach is adversarial, pure defense, in a way, mm-hmm. at least indirect adversarial. I'm afraid I'm stopping you. The other one says, I'm part of you, at least in some way. Uh, right. And so, you know, the lesson for brands in the long run is going to be interesting because uh, I was talking to another friend of mine, um, Ian Barry, he's chief creative officer at an agency in in Phoenix, and he said something to me. He's like, you know, when's it going to be okay to just laugh again at a billboard, right? Just look at a piece out of home and just say, you know, there's a sassy headline with a snappy visual and just, you know, Straight up, pre-COVID, you know, pre-March advertising. It's going to come a lot sooner, depending on your intended recipient. But the thing mm-hmm. about the in the world, the in the world space is, it's for everyone. So I, I actually think it's a fascinating question because it's not the question of, uh, you know, when can we just tell a regular joke? When can we have a normal ad? Which, by the way, people are starting to ask me as well. And I'm like, uh, you know, I, I have a tendency to work with audiences that don't want things to return to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're younger. They're, they're uh, well, just youth culture doesn't want things to go back to normal. That's the story of youth culture since Charlemagne, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but brands come to us for youth culture, to access youth culture. Yep. And so because I'm because my business circulates around zoomers and millennials, it's a lot easier for me to just tell you, yeah, you should be bullish in the world and you should be bullish on these social issues 
Because while there may be a couple of 17-year-olds out there that don't think Black Lives Matter, for example, the broad majority, even if they don't even believe it, are saying it and it's becoming more of a reality for them. So all of the, where it regards courting youth culture today, the, the tendency to ignore the political issues that they consider to be defining issues, that temptation is one that you should not lean into. Um, and being in the world signals your conviction. And I don't think you get to go in the world without skirting the topics that, that are most pressing for them. So yeah, I'm encouraging all my clients to a figure out how they are going to address this social justice uprising, how they are going to pitch their tent with the progressive ends, the youth end of this argument, which is clearly on one side of this issue. Um, and I don't mean, I don't think the issue is Black Lives Matter. I think the issue is inclusion and safety for all. There are socialist tendencies underneath it when you start to get into whether, whether school debt or universal health care or all, all of the things that defined our politics before George Floyd. Okay, all of those things, you know where youth culture stands on those things, for the most part. Uh, and, and so as a result, it's pretty easy for me to tell people, hey, here's how you tuck in. Here's how you contribute meaningfully to the agenda that they want to see. You know, the will, them exacting their will on the world can include you or not. Uh, but don't think that you can be their pal or be their buddy and not be very transparent about where you stand on the issues that matter, though. Yep. Um, and the easiest way to do that is by existing in the world, not by sending them a thinly sliced tweet that they know was printed on Monopoly money. <laughs> I mean, I Rick, that. I don't know. I, I don't know if you can use this or not, but I can just tell you this. The use moment it. Roger Goodell, the moment Roger Goodell said Black Lives Matter in his basement, looking like a defeated man, that's when the phrase stopped meaning anything. Not meaning anything. I don't want to go overboard. When it was when when he said Black Lives Matter, it was clear that that phrase is now printed on Monopoly money. Meaning, you don't have to mean it to say it. Hmm. And so that and so two things happen there. You have this like bare minimum thing. It's like okay now. Now, if you, if indeed you have to say it, even if you don't mean it, now everybody should have to say it, right? This is where youth culture is on this. Topic. It opens the floodgates and then it diminishes, <laughs> diminishes the power of it. And when you get back yeah. out into the people space, you know, the people who've learned that they own the apostrophe, right? This is my space. The people yep. who have learned that if I go out there in force, in numbers, put myself at risk, don't, you know, moderate myself and, and hold that placard up that that's going to be the world's largest out-of-home campaign, that if I'm out in that space, I need to say and do things that I can stand behind. And Yeah, and the, and the expectation is that everyone will. And I think yeah. they've taught us. They've taught us the power of being out on the streets is what they've taught us. And yeah. they've taught brands. Uh, they've reminded all of us and reminded themselves. It's uh, It's really quite inspiring to see what's happened in the long run. I mean... You know, and, and, and for, really for all points of view. 
Right. And, and I think the lot- first time we talked on record, Rick, I, I, I think we made this distinct or I made this distinction. It was a little clumsy between in the world and, and out of home. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how out of home is just the inventory sets and in the world is, is the philosophical kind of bent. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I can only really speak on in the world when I when I'm talking to uh, any of my partners. I'm talking about the channel in terms of what it can do uniquely in their media mix. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Milu, right? It's the the public conversation that always uh, happens going back for centuries. And out of home, whether you call it in the world or look at it as inventory sets, really ultimately becomes the voice of the people and a reflection of what's happening in any city, um, whether it's a highly cultural message, depending on the neighborhood, or something that's directional out on a rural highway. You know, hamburgers at the next yeah. right. Both yeah. of them provide utility. Both of them earn their right to be there. And both approaches are meaningful to me as a consumer. You know, thank you very much. That's helpful information. Either that stimulates me emotionally or culturally, or it just lets me know what's available to me down the road. You know, it goes back yeah. to delivering time, phone, or money, right? Something. Listen, there is, um, especially as we start to look at reentry, right? So I, to- I told you in the proverbial green room before we started, I'm driving down south today. And I can already tell you. Uh, so I've been locked in New Jersey uh, for months now in my home, comfortable home, but locked in it for months. And so today I'll be with my family. We'll be driving down 95 and then we'll hook over to 85 and we'll be on our way to my mom's house. And I can tell you. I know that somewhere along the line, I'm going to see my first Bojangles, which is like the Southern chicken chain. <laughs> I'm going to see my first Bojangles sign, and I will be flooded with nostalgia and excitement. I'll be energized. I can already tell you before I even get to it on the highway. Because <laughs> You're of everything looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to – I mean, I'm look, I'm probably too old to even have the sandwich, but it's this rec- – I'm going to recognize myself as getting closer to home. It's a mm-hmm. stage gate. To that drive south, you see your first Bojangles, you know you're there in the Carolinas, you're getting close. And so, you know, thinking about or, or even just being able to imagine myself seeing that sign and everything that it's going to unlock. You know, there are things that exist in the out-of-home environment that are milestones, stage gates, and they hold all this metadata and value for us. I think it's a mistake to only talk about, you know, the things that are bought on a 30-day rotational um on a 30 day rotational schedule as the out of home environment. And, you know, I hate to, I hate to go back to something that was talked about so much, but um, the little girl with the bull is a perfect example of that. The little girl with the bull. Yeah. There's a real opportunity right now, Rick, for look at the statues that are coming down, literal Mm -hmm. statues. Right. So, before it was like we're going to augment the statue, we're going to put this little girl in front of it, and that's going to be a oh thing, the Wall right? Street, yes, yes, yeah. Now things are coming down. It's like the idea of brand should not be involved in in that. I'm talking about permanent installations, things that reflect the values of the people around them. One of the most pro social things when I worked with the Nets, one of their most successful social campaigns had nothing to do with what they were tweeting. They saved a Biggie mural in Brooklyn. Right, I wanted to care about that. Yeah, and it's just like. You know, when you see what needs to be preserved, what needs to be removed, what needs to be swapped out. Um, and I think it's really cool when I see brands like Twitter. I think Twitter has a brilliant out-of-home campaign right now 
not just because it's interface, it actually is horizontal and looks like a billboard, <laughs> but they are taking, they're making sure that people on the platform aren't just heard on the platform. So there's this invitation from Twitter to be heard through this out of home campaign. And they're, I don't know how they're targeting it or what, but I know they are concentrating in cities where, um, where, for example, Black Lives Matter, um, advocacy is high. And they're just taking tweets and putting them on billboards. Because making, it's, the, it, it's a way to be heard, right? It's, it's a way to be heard. I would offer they're doing that for the exact same reason that a young person would be in their studio apartment spending their last money on a placard and a big can of paint and paint a sign and get out there and demonstrate because they know people are going to see it. They're doing that to relieve that person in that studio apartment of that onus. They're signaling that Twitter is signaling that a tweet, you know, we started this, we talked about, you can't do this work behind a keyboard, mm -hmm. right? You have to be in the world to make this work. And what Twitter is doing is, is acknowledge, is taking the onus of, okay, somebody on the other side, they did something up behind the keyboard, but I know it needs to go in the world. So I'm going to put it there. And that's, I think that's brilliant. I think Twitter is the, exemplar of how to exist in, in these communities and in, in, in this space right now. But the moment we get past 30 sheets and bulletins and all of the surfaces that they're using to take these temporary messages and put them up temporarily so that they have to be negotiated by anybody walking by, which as you know, I think is brilliant. I think we really now get into, okay, who, who is going to help us design what the world that we all live in, with the with the apostrophe clearly understood around or in between the E and the S, uh, who's going to help us? Who's going to finance this? Who's going to provide the infrastructure for this? I think it's an enormous opportunity for brands that are sufficiently motivated. All right, to give access to the people to the bigger voice on the streets, and I think you're going to see yeah. it coming. You know, and in a permanent way. In a permanent way that a James Calhoun statue was intended to be. I think that's the next. I think that's the next layer out from a billboard that puts someone's voice on it. Um, Monuments and landmarks, gonna, right? I think we're going to start seeing that. Yeah, it's going to start in retail. It's going to start in retail. Okay. And then it'll bloom out into the into the commons, the true commons. I think. Well, it's, it, the brands can do it in their fixed retail space. That's like an easy access thing, right? We Let's own this in a different way. They already own that space. It's already got storefronts. Um, they got storefronts. They got windows. Right. And um, they've got, yeah. And how, and how do you use those? Well, well, we've covered a lot, Chaucer. This has been fun. It's a lot, it's a lot to get through, yeah. <laughs> um, you know what really moved me? And... Um, for some reason, I was born on this planet to be a, a big out-of-home geek. I don't know why, but I've certainly uh, surrendered myself to it. But when you talk about driving south, you know, the your experience will change in many ways, right? It'll change because you'll go from an urban environment to more rural environments. There'll be different food chains. There'll be different, um, you know, density of population, the landscape will change you know different trees different flora and fauna but the other mm -hmm. thing that's going to change is the out-of-home advertising 
the, the, the format types, the density of it, the quantity of it, and the type of messaging on that. And it was very powerful when you described how seeing those Bojangles billboards that you know are coming, you're already anticipating, will trigger all yeah. that emotion and memory. I think there's going to be a big market for nostalgia. I know I, I'm, I'm feeling one. People want to feel safe. All right, we're going to wrap. We're going to wrap. Yeah, this was fun, man. Um, I, time, I think man. It's kind of hitting me that I think what we're going to need to do since you were the inaugural uh, guest on, on this podcast, and now it's six months later, uh, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep – you're going to be a thread, Choss. We're going we're gonna to keep coming back to Chaucer. And – you know, reset our mind about where we're at out there in the world. Great conversation, Chaucer. Thank you. To all of our listeners out there, keep your heads up and your eyes open out there in the world. Thanks for joining us for this episode of In the World. You can find out more about Billups at Billups.com or on social at Billups. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.